0: Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Europe Elects podcast. We've been away for a while, uh, but as we have told you in our latest update episode, uh, we're very excited to to be back. Uh, And it's me, Gabriel, I'm still here, (laughs) together with my new colleagues, Javid, Ivad and Alistair Warner. Hi. Hi, both. How are you doing?
1: I'm doing well, how are you? I'm doing well too.
0: All good. Yeah, all good. Uh, first of all, Javid, I'm uh, very thankful that you're doing this so late <laughs> so late in your evening. We're really at the two uh, extremes of the European continent, which is great. So uh, I think we'll just crack on because there's been so much going on in recent weeks and months for us to crack through today. Just to summarize, we're going to check in with news from Italy, the UK, Sweden, Austria, France, Germany, Montenegro, Slovakia, Slovenia, Switzerland, and Denmark, as well as some updates from the European Parliament. Uh, We'll also bring you some of our favourite polling highlights of the last month. As you know, that's my favourite segment of the podcast. But before we go into all that juicy stuff, here are some messages of how you could support us at Europlex. Alex is run by volunteers. We aren't funded by any big donors, and everything that we do as a team, including this podcast, is only possible with the help of our supporters, and we want to do more as well. You can support us via our Patreon, where we've started sharing exclusive discussions, special content, and more. You can even get a shout-out in our videos or podcast episodes as a supporter as well. Or, better yet, I think the most coveted thing for our followers is the lovely merch. Uh, So don't miss out. Support us by becoming a patron on Patreon. And speaking of merch, at Europelex.redbubble.com, you can find all the mugs, maps, t-shirts, stickers, and much more that we have produced, with more and more designs being added all the time. If you're anything like us at Europeplex you don't want to miss out on showing everybody how much of a polling and election nerd you are. And if you're a fan of a specific European parliamentary group, uh, you'll be able to find uh, merch uh, to highlight that too. Check out the designs on europalex.redbubble.com and let us know how you like them.
1: And of course, if you like this podcast and want to help us grow, be sure to subscribe and drop us a review on whichever platform you listen to us from. And most importantly, tell people about us. Also, if you have an idea for a segment, thoughts and topics, we Should be covering, or if you just want to say hi, shoot us an email at podcast at europeelects.eu.
0: In the past month, three European countries have seen new right wing governments elected, indicating a trend for us all to monitor uh, going forward. I'm talking about Italy, the UK, and Sweden. So, in our first segment, we're going to dive into those a bit deeper to give you the latest update and what the next steps are for each country in terms of party politics. Um, Javid, do you want to kick off with a summary of what's been going on in Italy?
1: Yes, with my great pleasure. Well, on October 22nd, Italy confirmed its new government. Uh, Giorgia Meloni was sworn in as Italy's first female prime minister. Uh, after the elections held on September twenty five. like, we have seen a dramatic shift in the it- Italian society to the right of the spectrum. Uh, widely considered, like most pundits widely consider it as the most right-wing Italian government since World War II. And the government comprises of three partners. It's obviously Giorgio Meloni's ECR-affiliated Brothers of Italy, the center-right Forza Italia, led by Berlusconi, and the right-wing Lega. Uh, with its popular chair of Matteo Salvini, uh, the cabinet comprised of twenty five ministries, including PM, and they are divided like proportionally based on the vote shares between parties. But what is interesting, um, deputy prime ministers of Meloni are Alberto Tajani, who was the previous president of the European Parliament, uh, in the Juncker Commission. And another deputy prime minister is Matteo Salvini, obviously. But what is interesting, Matteo Salvini didn't get Minister of Internal Affairs. Instead, he's the Minister of Infrastructure. And this actually raises some concerns like among his elite because... Uh, Salvini was really keen on regulating like especially like, the migration affairs uh in the south. Instead, like there's this another one of his associates who's independent is the minister. Uh but there's also like another interesting situation here. Some argue that Salvini is like may actually even uh, lead to the collapse of the government at some point. Uh, but while in opposition, all three parties were popular in their skeptical views on Euro-Atlanticism. Meloni reassured both NATO and EU that they're still going to continue with their commitments, uh, also in aiding Ukraine in its fight against Russia, while Lega and Forzi t- Italia also still flirt with pro-Putin sentiments to some extent. Uh, in addition, Italy desperately needs the EU funds to boost its economy in light of the post-pandemic plan. But from what we can understand, because Meloni mistrusts both of its coalition partners, both Berlusconi and Salvini, she may seek a closer tie with Brussels because she's in desperate need of some sort of allies, to say so, to, uh, to, to sort of speak. But in general, from what we can observe, Meloni will align with the general trade of far-right parties in giving up on the economic and foreign policies in order to pursue the far-right agenda in the domestic arena, and especially when it comes to social cultural policies. For example, recently, there's been this new law, like there's new law that uh, the government wants to pass or cracking down the raves among the youths so yeah like this is the general direction in italy right now
0: and uh, alistair um i i'm sure a lot of our followers will have followed the the k cha- the relative chaos um in the uk so can you give us the latest on that and um what the status is in the uk at the moment where both you and i um are uh to clarify
2: Of course, Gabriel. In in British politics, we have seen a week where decades happen. Liz Truss, who started her premiership following Boris Johnson's resignation, has resigned herself following a 49-day ministry that is the shortest in British history. Her resignation was caused by the reaction to the so-called mini-budget, which sparked a run on the pound and almost led to pension fund defaults. She then lost the confidence of her own MPs when whipping them to oppose a motion to ban fracking, leading to reports of, among other things, of her own whips resigning and of her MPs being physically forced to vote. Following this, she resigned the next day. After a short nomination period, with speculations of the return of one Boris Johnson to Prime Minister, Conservative MPs nominated only one candidate to become their new leader, Rishi Sunak. With no competitor to his candidacy, he was accepted without a vote of the membership, and he became Prime Minister the next day. This entire series of events is unprecedented in the history of British politics, and highlights how increasingly unstable the Conservative government in Britain has become, despite its sizeable majority. From his appointments thus far, Rishi Sunak appears to be trying to synthesise the economic austerity of the Cameron government while continuing the ideals of culture war, as promoted by Boris Johnson's previous adviser Dominic Cummings. We've yet to see any firm policy from the government, however, and its ability to react to coming events, like a series of expected public sector worker strikes, will likely define how it plans to govern for the remaining two years of this parliament. It's worth noting, throughout all of this, Conservative government has been receiving some of its lowest polling results. And on the other side, the centre-left Labour Party has seen some of the extreme record highs. But maybe we'll talk about this in the polling highlights, so stick around for that.
0: Uh, I'm sure we will. Uh, it's, been, um, it's been wild, really. It's, uh, it's always fun for us, neutrally, obviously, uh, when there are such big short-term swings in um, opinion polling. Uh, so finally, now to Sweden. It's now been around two months since the country's elections took place, marking a significant shift in the country from the left to the right. Following the victory of the loose coalition around the centre-right moderate party, it took a bit more than a month for uh, the party to present the form and policy focus of Sweden's new government, which is outlined in a very detailed document called the Tida Agreement. Catchy, I know. (laughs) Uh, It's named after the castle at which the final stages of negotiations took place. To summarise very quickly, the moderate party led by Ulf Kristersson, Sweden's new prime minister, and its fellow centre-right party, the Christian Democrats, led by Eva Bush, have become the strongest pairing in Swedish politics in recent years and are guaranteed spots in government as long as they can manage to balance the desires and ultimatums of the growing right-wing to far-right nationalist, Sweden Democrats, and the struggling centrist Liberal Party. The solution opted for uh, by these two centre-right parties is a three-party government, including the Liberals, governing with the active support of the Sweden Democrats based on this TIDA agreement, which gives the Sweden Democrats a formalised influence on policy development and the opportunity to engage in budget negotiations each year between now and 2026 at the time of the next round of elections. Uh, It is generally agreed that uh, the Sweden Democrats came out as the big winner of this agreement in terms of policy pledges with a new government pursuing a very tough line on immigration and law and order. Whereas the other parties benefited more from dividing government posts, uh, between each other. And, um, similarly to what, um, was said about Italy, the Sweden Democrats being outside of government also means that issues around foreign policy and to a certain extent, sort of crisis, um, policies needed in terms of finance will be kept away from the Sweden Democrats somehow, and they will be able to focus more on domestic campaigning on um, crime and immigration, which is um, what they care most for. While there are some worries of dissident liberals blocking the ascension of the Christian government, uh, the strategy chosen of tying the Liberals very closely to the centre-right coalition via ministerial posts, uh, seemed to have worked very well so far. On the 18th of October, the new cabinet was revealed. The moderates occupying a bit more than half of the ministerial positions for key areas such as finance, foreign affairs, justice and migration, which you could imagine as the the biggest party they would go for. The Christian Democrats were awarded with six uh, with party leader Eva Bush being both deputy prime minister and minister for energy and enterprise, which is a big one given the role played by energy policy uh, in the recent election. Uh, the Liberal Party finally is now in charge of the party's key policy area, which is education. But the most surprising appointment of all was the recruitment of Sweden's youngest ever minister, uh, 26-year-old uh, Rowena Purmokhtari, who is now in charge of climate issues in Sweden. So that's quite um, quite remarkable. Pormukhtari has historically been one of the most vocal anti sweden Democrat politicians within the Liberal Party. So to appoint her is widely seen as a move to buy her support because as a minister and the experience she'll get in that role, it is very unlikely that she will directly challenge the government, even if it gives in to a lot of Sweden Democrats' demands. That said this remains a very weak government, especially as the center-right parties combined are smaller than the main opposition part of the Social Democrats, so bear with me. This means that the government rely on the Sweden Democrats in each and every vote in Parliament, and in their turn, the Sweden Democrats have a majority with the Social Democrats, which might at some point be used to stop right-wing economic policies promoted by the moderates, the Christian Democrats, and the Liberals. And the point of having this segment to start with, and thank you for both of your input, Javid and uh, Alistair, is, uh, is this trend of right wing and far right parties entering government, um, but also centre right mainstream parties co opting far right policies and rhetoric, Uh, especially around issues such as immigration, which we've also seen, Alistair, haven't we, here in the UK in recent, um, in recent days, in the past week or so, where the issue around, uh, migrants crossing the channel from France to the UK has purposely been put at the front of the, of the news agenda, also sort of playing into that, into that trend. So, um, I don't know if either of you have any quick thoughts on this, um,
2: before we move on. One point I would like to bring up, as you've mentioned, is that there's a lot of talk in the British body politique as a result of the comments of the Home Secretary, Suella Breverman, of referring to uh, economic migrants crossing the channel, specifically Albanians, as a, quote-unquote an invasion. It's worth noting that this rhetoric isn't usual for British politics, but certainly has had precedent. And it also highlights the links between this rhetoric within Britain and what is found within other parts of Europe it resembles a lot of what Fratelli d'Italia and Lauren Justice in Poland and uh, Orban in Hungary refer to migrants and it kind of highlights the growing links between these parties not just on an organizational level but also on a more fundamental ideological and rhetorical level um and kind of builds on this idea, as I've seen it referred to, of the nationalist international. This idea of European political parties within this kind of unique national, nationalist framework, cooperating and sharing ideals and rhetoric to kind of build a common narrative of uh, Fortress Europa, as I've seen it called.
0: And I guess what's what's interesting in in with the system in the UK, obviously, the Conservative Party is very, very broad. Um, so. All of this is coming to the fore due to the fact that Rishi Sunak uh, relies on these hard right members of his party uh, to support him uh, and not um, create another <laughs> another um, week of chaos. Uh, well, from what I
1: observe, I'm actually like it's been a while that I'm following far, uh, far right parties, especially in Western Europe, like in the European continent in general uh i believe at some point we saw that these parties are like had a broader set of policies or positions but i believe uh, right now like this myth has been debunked because at the end of the day we all need to understand that the right the far right parties are mostly single issue parties that develop policies and programs in various segments, just to trade them off. When the moment is ripe, like when they are going to negotiate uh, for for a coalition government, because that's what we've seen in Sweden, that's what we're seeing in Italy in a way. Uh, There is this Dutch scholar, Kas Müdde, who is one of the most prominent scholars of uh, far-right politics. Uh, he has said once, years ago, that it's not the economy, stupid. So probably he was right at the, after all.
0: <laughs> and we should say that we were fans of Kass and he's been on the podcast back, at, back during COVID times um discussing far out parties then. So shout out to him. So... Now, let's dive into a quick fire round of news, um, from around the continent. Um, Javid, you, you, you've been looking into Austria?
1: Yes, I was, Gabriel. Uh, well, we now start, well, very recently in Austria, there's been presidential elections and mostly, usually, the process was taking like two rounds of uh electoral process but this time Alexander van der Bellen the incumbent president, he was so popular and he was such an actual like the consensus candidate within the political sphere. So he ended up getting 56 percent of the vote in the first tour and he got reelected for a second term. Uh, and his main competitor was from Freedom Party of Austria, FBO, Walter Rosencrantz, and he just got 17% of the vote. So we'll see another six-year term from Van der Wedden as the head of state.
2: Moving on to France, where a by-election took place in the town of Ylvien, second constituency, apologies for pronunciation, with the outgoing Liberal MP Jean-Noël Barrot came in first and will be in both the first and second round. He ended up getting re-elected with 72% of the vote against the left-wing Nupé candidate Métier-Cavré-Bédouigny, who received only 28% of the vote.
0: But on the same day as that um, as that vote in France, uh, neighbouring country Germany uh, saw a regional parliament election in the state of Lower Saxony. The election saw central-left SPD retaining its position as the biggest party in the region with 33.4% of the vote and 57 seats, which was two more than in 2017. The centre-right uh, CDU came second with 47 seats, uh, followed by the two parties that gained the most in this election, which were the Greens, uh, receiving 24 seats, and the right-wing AfD Alternative for Deutschland at 18. Both the Greens and AfD uh, doubled their seats on 2017, uh, which is quite remarkable. Uh, and uh, part of this uh, happening was because the liberal um, FDP fell below the 5% threshold, which meant that it lost all of its representation in the regional parliament, so quite dramatic.
1: So staying with regional elections, we go to Switzerland, where the canton of Zug went to the polls. And the results showed all three governing parties being neck and neck. The centre-right, Die Mitte, came in the first place with 19 seats, although the party was the second in terms of vote share. The Liberal FDP and the right-wing SVP were first and served respectively in the vote share, but each received 18 seats in the original parliament. The Green Alternative came forth with 11 seats, and the rest of the seats went to the center left SP that received 8 seats and the Liberal GLP that received 6
2: Next up is Montenegro, where elections occurred in 14 of the country's 24 municipalities. While the result was a blow for the ruling party of Milo Djukanovic, DPS still came in first in total seat, but saw its numbers overall fall in every single municipality. This is the continuation of a trend that started at the party's losses in local elections back in March. The parties that gain most this time around are the right-wing pro-Russia Democratic Front Alliance, the newly merged centrist pro-EU party Europe Now movement, and the centre-right Bosniak minority party, the Bosniak party.
0: Carrying on with more local and regional elections, uh, let's head to Slovakia, where, in a familiar trend to the country at this stage, independent candidates were the clear first choice of the electorate, resulting in over 46% of the elected mayors having run as independents. In terms of party supported candidates, the center left class of the former prime minister Peter Pellegrini came first with 9% of the elected mayors. And the clear losers of the elections, uh, looking at the other hand, was LSNS and other far right parties, as they managed to elect only one representative in any of the city councils uh, across Slovakia. Finally,
1: we go to Slovenia, where the first round of the presidential elections took place. The candidate of the centre right SDS, Anja Logar, and the independent candidate supported by the Pirate Party and the Green SMS Z, Natasha Pirc Musar, will move on to a second round having received 34 and 26.9% respectively. The second round will take place on November 13, with polls so far pointing to Natasha Pirc Musar becoming the next president of Slovenia.
0: Now to our second main story of this episode, and we're going to dissect the Danish elections, aren't we, Alistair?
2: Yes, we are. The citizens of Denmark went to the polls on the 1st of November to elect a new parliament, the Folketing, in snap elections. The elections were caused by the Social Liberal Party of Denmark, BRE, threatening to pull their support for the social democratic government of Mette Frederiksen if... The Prime Minister did not call snap elections. The government is also supported, in addition from the Social Liberal Party, by the Green Left, FGFA, and the Red-Green Alliance, or Left. The Social Liberals' threat to pull support, thereby forcing PM Fredrickson to call elections, stem from the government in November 2020 deciding to kill all live mink in Denmark due to medical bodies sounding alarm over the possibility of a new variant of COVID-19 that may mutate in the bodies of the mink. To be frank, I've never heard of a political crisis quite like this. It was later revealed, however, that the government did not have the legal authority to order a certain part of the mink population killed. This caused great criticism from opposition parties, and as a result of the Prime Minister's handling of the case, the Social Liberal Party of Denmark decided to demand snap elections. Despite the government backlash over mink terminations, the much-debated government plans to build an asylum centre in Rwanda, where asylum seekers are to be placed while their asylum cases are being processed. The Social Democrat Party experienced a rise in support compared to the 2019 elections, ending with 27.5% of the vote and 50 seats in Parliament, two seats more than their 2019 result.
0: However, the elections proved disastrous for the Liberal Venster, going from 43 to 23 seats, so almost uh, cut in half. This is likely due to the former two-time Prime Minister and Venstre Chairman Lars-Lokke Rasmussen having left the party to form a new one called the Moderates. Uh, The Moderates ended up as the third largest party in the elections with 9.3% of the vote and 16 seats. Now this is a really interesting party. It was founded just in June with the pledge to seek to end the bloc politics defining Danish politics and create a government across the middle of the spectrum, which in Denmark will mean to include both centre-left and centre-right parties. Additionally, uh, Venster's former Minister of Immigration and Integration, uh, who was impeached and sentenced to jail time last year for illegally separating immigrant couples, where one of the partners were below 18 years of age uh, during her time as minister, also ran with the new party. Uh, this party is the right-wing Denmark-Democrats, which came in fifth this time with 8.1% of the vote and 14 seats. Following a very tight vote count in Denmark, uh, which in the end depended on central left and left-wing MPs being elected in Greenland and the Faroe Islands, uh, Prime Minister Fredriksen uh, of the Social Democratic Party came out with a razor-slim majority for her center left alliance. Um, however... Uh, Negotiations are currently ongoing because in the campaign uh, Prime Minister Fediksen said that her first choice would be centrist government as well, in line with what Rasmussen said. So it's now debate of whether she leans to her left uh, or if she follows up on that promise to govern from the middle.
1: Well, now we get to visit the European Parliament where a lot of changes have taken place, especially following the elections in Italy but we will just tease you with the mention of all these changes and actually direct you to our site, where on europeelects.eu slash Union you can find every MEP change that has taken place since 2019, plus some nice nerdy info on every European parliamentary group. Since you are a listener of the podcast, we can guarantee you will enjoy all this data and we are kind of proud of being able to share it with you. Speaking of our lovely site... There, you will also be able to find our latest European Parliament projection. Truly worth the read.
0: Yes, go on our website. There are lots of graphs. It's colourful and fun. So for all political nerds out there, I definitely would would heed this advice from Javid. Um, Before we all say goodbye, uh, we have our polling highlight session where we dive into just polls, nothing else. Less context, just the figures that we love to crunch uh, so much. Uh, There was a lot of uh, highlights this past month, as you will have guessed, um, with the far-right ECRA having consecutive record highs in Estonia and the Liberal-K having consecutive record lows there as well. Uh, A scenario poll in Austria uh, saw the satirist party BIA uh, well above the electoral threshold in the country, which is quite remarkable. And The far-right party Pepe appeared for the first time in a poll in Greece and this is just the beginning of it So let's crack on with the rest. Javid, what's what's your polling highlight?
1: Well an interesting poll result is in the Netherlands where an Ipsos poll showed the right-wing forum for democracy reached 1.9% its lowest polling result since March of 2017 This result will give the party three seats now while the right wing party had received eight seats in twenty twenty one elections, it currently has five seats in parliament, as three of its MPs now make up the newly formed right wing uh BFNL, Belang
0: van Nederland party. Netherlands is special because even with one point nine percent you can still <laughs> survive and power on. <laughs> so Exactly, yeah, you can you can get with
1: with zero point sixty seven.
0: Yes. So, um, it's, it's quite remarkable. Um, and loyal listeners to, to our podcast in recent years will know that it's quite common for Italy to be mentioned in, in this segment. Uh, and it will be this time. Why would we break tradition? So first of all, the common list of liberal azione in Italia viva reached a record high of 8.3% in an SWG poll, which is remarkable mainly because they overtake Lega in that poll. And you'll remember at one point, Lega were seen as the sort of unstoppable force in Italian politics. Even worse for Lega, though, is another poll, which showed them at 7.9%, which is an eight-year record low and close to one percentage point lower than what they received in the elections that just took place. So they still are losing support following the campaign finally we have the national conservative fratelli d'italia that had five record highs in the span of about three weeks and again for those of you who have listened to the podcast in the last year or so we've talked about fratelli d'italia at record highs pretty much every episode the party of the new prime minister Giorgio maloney uh, received 26 percent in the elections this september and they've recently received 27.5 percent in a poll by swg 28% 28% in an auto poll, 28.3% in another SWG poll, uh, and even as high as 298 in an Ipsos poll released in the past few weeks. So Fratelli d'Italia and Giorgio Maloney are benefiting from uh, the result in the election and from uh, taking the reins of the Italian government.
2: And now on to my native Britain, as I tease in the start of the episode, the recent political crisis has been causing a lot of electoral turmoil within the UK, and is especially represented within polling. For starters, the centre-left Labour Party has seen a number of record highs, way above 50%. In a YouGov poll, it received 54%. In an omnesis poll, it received 55%. In a Redfield and Winton Strategies poll, it received 56%. And in another amnesis poll, the centre-left party received 57% of the vote. To be frank, it is quite astonishing in Britain politics to have that occur. On the other end of the spectrum, the Conservative party received only 14% of the vote. It's lowest national parliament vote ever in a people polling poll. The party having been founded in 1834, being one of the oldest political parties in Europe, had its worst national parliament result in 1997 with 30.7%. So hitting a low of below 20 would be catastrophic in the history of British politics for the Conservatives.
0: Yeah, and it's uh, it can be said that since, uh, obviously the the peaks and lows of this was during those crazy last days of uh, Lysstras, and while the Tories are regaining some ground, it's still remarkable that they, they're continuing to trail by 20-25% um, impulse still. So, um, they'll hope that the floor has been reached, but let's see. Um, there will be a rocky winter, I think. Um, That's all of our news and polling highlights from around Europe for this episode. I'd like to thank all of you for listening. And I'd like to thank you, Javid and Alistair, for doing this uh, with me for the first time ever. Um, So yeah, see you all next time. Well, thank you for
1: listening to the EuropaLex podcast hosted by Gabriel Hedengren, Alastair Warner and Javi Dibat. The managing editor is Polychronis Karampelas. The script was written by our hosts and our writing team, Ewan Healy, Matthew Nicholson, Yorgos Kakouris, Guilherme Ferreira Sende, Yannis Arshakan and Tijani Saleh. The audio engineer and editor is Alex Figursky. The music was by Jose Alvarado and everything we do wouldn't be possible without our patrons on Patreon.